We're continuing our study through the, the book of Zechariah, and we're ready for chapter 4. Uh, you may remember that this uh, portion is a series of eight visions, and last uh, time I was here I suggested that the fourth and the fifth, and we're now to the fifth one, are sort of the height, uh, the, uh, the center of these visions. And uh, it's interesting that dealing uh, first uh, off with uh, a couple of Zechariah's contemporaries. Uh, the fourth vision in the last chapter was uh, about Joshua, uh, the spiritual leader, and then this chapter is dealing with Zerubbabel, uh, the governmental leader. And uh, one of the things we can see is just in passing is that people are important to God. And so these two men are, are receiving encouragement. And now it's much greater than that, uh, but uh, each one is important uh, before God. So Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you? O great mountain, before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house, his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Forever as despised the day of small things shall rejoice and still see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time, I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes, from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. 
might say that children, if you want to uh, note something, you might note every time I say Spirit or Holy Spirit in the sermon. And so I've just said Holy Spirit, that, uh, that's the third time, so, and I'll say it more, so you can just start from that and just see how many times it's used in the sermon. I'd be interested afterward if you would tell me what you came up with. I don't know if it's still true with the pandemic and all the rest that's going on, but the typical statistics says that conservative Bible-believing churches, 85% are declining or at best stagnant. Then only 15% of churches are actually growing in our country. Now, with liberal churches, it's even much worse than that. And that's a, a cause for great concern and great study. Why are churches going downhill? And it doesn't matter if they're happening Baptist or Assembly of God or Reformed or whatever type. It's pretty standard from one denomination to another. And if you're up front preaching or sitting in the pew and you're noticing that every year there are few, fewer and fewer people in the pew, maybe only two or three or five, the trend is disconcerting. And you wonder why and what can be done. And over the years, I've seen uh, several different responses. One is to sort of ignore the fact. To say, well, we're not in the numbers. Don't you remember in the Bible what happened when David counted the people? And so implying we shouldn't be doing that either. Or there's others who say, well, we're holding to the truth. We're not wavering in our commitment to God. And as we've been faithful, well, our numbers have been declining. You know, our message isn't very popular today. The culture is against us. The people don't seem to be very interested in Christianity anymore. And it's almost as if They've taken Christ's promise to build his church and say, well, I'm going to shrink my church if they're faithful. Another is a more proactive approach that says, what can be done? And there's an endless looking for programs. Is there some sort of new evangelism or outreach program? Do we need to change our worship and liven it? Do we need you know, some sort of lighting and smoke and a band? Or do we need to have our pastor come out in, in a t-shirt and blue jeans so that he relates to people or is seen that way? Do we need, as some would say, to get rid of prayers? that many would see as boring. And the promise is almost if you do those things, 
then God is sure to bless you. You'll see growth. People will come because you have a live nativity with camels and sheep up front. Well, the fifth vision we have here is a powerful antidote to that type of thinking. Look at verse 6. It's really the high point of the chapter. It's God's word to Zerubbabel, the leader of God's people. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. It is telling to Zerubbabel and to us, success doesn't come by might and power, by what we would do. In Zerubbabel's case, it's not how many volunteers you have to help with the work. It's not with your fancy programs that would attract people, getting on TV so that people can see you, or getting on the radio, but rather by my spirit. The Holy Spirit must be working in the lives of people, and especially the leaders, if there's to be new strength, new vitality. And so the first point as we look at verses 1 to 5 is the church, the people of God, as it's viewed here, is glorious. And we need to start with that. That the church is glorious. It's something beautiful to behold, and we need to see it like that. And if you had been in the 6th century B.C. and been in Jerusalem, you would have said, what? There are only a few here. The city is unprotected. We're weak, we're despised. Any enemy coming along can, can easily defeat us. And sometimes as churches, and in part of a small denomination, we, we, we can think that th- same sort of thing. You know, compared to the political powers, the power in Washington, D.C., or the cultural elites, and, and, and Hollywood, and New York City, and the financial capital of the world, uh, we don't have much influence. We don't have much power. but we're glorious in the eyes of God. Now, Zerubbabel was a direct descendant of David and Solomon. But the kingship had gone to a very low point now. He wasn't someone that would be feared by other nations. And there's no temple, and there's only a remnant in the, in the land. Uh, you know, he had no power to make trees with others. And in verse 10, it talks about their efforts, how to despise, the, that this is the day of small things, what we've done already in, in rebuilding the temple. It's just, a, it's just insignificant. How could God see us 
as anything but insignificant compared to the great nations of the world. But how does God view the church? Well, it's in terms of a lampstand, a menorah as it is. And notice this lampstand. Unlike the one that would have been set up in the original temple, this one that he has a vision of is, is much greater, much more elaborate, and it's made all of gold. It's very precious. And you even notice that at the end, it's the, the oil that flows into it is gold. So all that's associated is, is beautiful and costly and attractive. And there's this bowl and there's an endless supply of oil. You notice that each, each one of those candles has seven places and they have seven. The 49 lips that are feeding the oil, and we might say they're pore spouts, that are feeding in and making sure that the candle has the oil it needs. It would have lit up the temple area much brighter than the one that's described in the Pentateuch. And now, how do I know that the lampstand really represents the people of God? Well, you could go to Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's but the Lord will arise upon you, talking about his people. His glory will be seen upon you. The nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. The source of light to the dark world is the people of God, that lampstand that shines in the darkness. And uh, a couple of chapters later, Talking about Jerusalem, its righteousness is a light that's gone forth into the darkness. And what's being said there is that as God's people stand for God and represent God, people see the light. And that's still true today. In the New Testament, we see the same sort of image. Jesus in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. And the implication is people will be able to see that you're walking in the light, that you're different. As they stumble around trying to find truth, trying to find light, we have it in Jesus Christ. And then go to Revelation chapters 1 to 3. We have the, the seven churches, and they're pictured as a lampstand, and those seven churches in Asia Minor. And it's a glorious image that Jesus Christ is the, is the light. And his churches are the lampstand that 
causes that light to shine forth, to be seen by more. We aren't the light, but the light shines forth from us. Well, the second point is, what makes the church so glorious? It's in verse 6. It first tells us what does it. It's not by might or not by power. It's not by things that we do. It isn't because we're mighty people or we're smarter people or we do better planning or have a better program that uh, Israel is able to form alliances with all sorts of nations and therefore it would be most favored or it could become the financial center of the world, or it had tens of thousands of workers to rebuild the temple. Now, it wasn't their strength. And today, we need to keep in mind, it's not what the church does. It isn't because we have the most hip pastor up front or a sound system that can blast everybody in the next county, or a light show that rivals that of Hollywood. No, the answer is, by my spirit. It comes back down to the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit active and working among us? And children, are you still counting the number of times Holy Spirit's used? It's the work of the Holy Spirit that makes the church glorious. And how does it, the Holy Spirit do that? As he brings one person to faith, and then another, and then another. And we need to think about the Holy Spirit and how much we need. We can be the lamb's dead but be completely powerless. And I don't know if you've ever had the electricity go out in the middle of the night and you go and grab your flashlight and you turn it on and it's dark. Because the batteries are dead. There's no power to it. It becomes useless. And there's huge, beautiful cathedrals in Europe. But there's no spirit. They're just dead worshiping and and only a few. It's an attractive building. But the spirit of God is missing. We can see what happens when the spirit of God comes at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out with power and the results were thousands were converted. And in the vision, the the oil is pictured as coming from two trees, one to the right, one to the left. They're continually supplying the power that's needed to the church. And the idea is in this picture is that the Holy Spirit is continually working in the church. 
causing people to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit enables each and every Christian to serve in the kingdom. Sometimes others don't even see it. But he's working. That kind word to a co-worker makes an indelible impression upon him. And life has changed. That small child who feels unloved. And someone gets down on their knee and talks to them. And they suddenly realize, this person cares about me. But the third point as we look at this vision is in verse 7, that the Holy Spirit removes obstacles. It says, uh, who are you? Or we might say, what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Now for Zerubbabel, there was a mountain of rubble standing right there, right where the temple was to be. And they didn't have big earth movers but before the Spirit of God, that was nothing. And I don't know what's the big obstacle in your life. You may be thinking in terms of the congregation. We don't have a, a senior pastor right now. Where's that gonna where's that person gonna come from? There's a further in, in Zechariah's day, there was opposition. The peoples around uh, didn't want them there, didn't want them rebuilding. And later on, uh, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, it got so bad they sent letters mm-hmm. over to, to, to Babylon, complaining, saying, shut down this work, it's rebellious. And they go and they search. And the response is, oh, they're authorized to do this. Don't stop them. You help them in the rebuilding effort. God took that enemy and made them assist in the rebuilding of the walls. And so you may be facing opposition. It may be in terms of the culture. Increasing hostility toward Christianity. To those who say there's truth and there's right. But the promise to Zerubbabel and to God's people that by the Holy Spirit those things will be dealt with. They will become a plane. They won't stop the kingdom from advancing. And how important it is by my spirit that as you rely on the spirit of God, that all fades away. And for those who say, well, 
you don't know how hard it is for a church like us to grow. You know, we don't have a band. We don't have elaborate liturgy. There are Reformed Presbyterian churches across the world that are growing who are just like us. And we can look back uh, 2,500 years to the time of Zechariah. And the people were stirred up at the preaching of Haggai and, and, and Zechariah. And they proceeded to rebuild. They had a heart to rebuild. Look at the, the promise at the end of verse 7 that's made to, to Zerubbabel personally. That he himself is the one who's going to put the top stone. It's uh, sometimes called a capstone. That, that last one, you had a foundation stone that lays the foundation, but then when you get it all complete, you'd have a capstone. So it's sort of Put it all together. And it wouldn't happen until three and a half years later. But just as Zerubbabel had been there and helped laid the foundation in three and a half more years, he's going to be the guy with the plumb line. The guy who's going to be placing that final stone in the temple. And that's the same temple that was standing when Jesus Christ centuries later entered it with that same capstone that Zerubbabel had placed there. And it's with the shouts of grace, grace to it. And the way the Hebrew language emphasizes something is they repeat it. So when it says grace, grace, it's meaning very gracious, abundant grace. That the people understand that when the temple is completed, it's all because of God's abounding grace to them. That they were able to complete the work. God had given the people the hearts to do it, the endurance to do it the determination to do it. As stone by stone, they removed the bad stones and as they replaced them with the good. You realize, of course, that uh, Zerubbabel is in the line of Christ. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy that's there, in verse 12, we'll say, after the de deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shetiel. Shetiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And then it goes on. And it goes all the way down to Joseph, the husband of Mary. So he's one who is foreshadowing, pointing to the one who's going to come, who is, would have been from the line of David, who would have been the rightful king, but David's greater son. And so 
not only is his promise to Zerubbabel, but he's also, in effect, pointing us to Jesus Christ, that greater one who enters in to this temple, who dies outside the city walls, going to be rebuilt in another generation. Jesus Christ is that one who's the great high priest, the king of kings and lord of lords, who is still building his church. And I can't help but think of the church in China today. There was a time in the early 1950s, all the missionaries were kicked out, and for many years, I was wondering what was going on in China. Were the Christians still there? Before the missionaries were kicked out, there were maybe 100,000 believers in weak churches. And would anything survive? And when China opened up again, there were not hundreds of thousands of believers. There were millions of believers. Not one to the church by having fancy programs or being on TV, but by people being empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness, to serve, to reach out to others. So person after person after person was converted to Christ. And the fourth and final point we need is the Holy Spirit uses means. We see that he uses human beings to accomplish his purposes. And you can see that in verse 14. You might have noticed as we did the scripture reading, Zechariah really is repeating the same question three times, each time a little bit more elaborate, a little bit more earnest, you know, in verse 4. What are these two olive trees? You know, what do they represent? And then in verse 11, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And finally, in, in verse 12, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And God delays to the final verse of giving an answer. These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Literally, the Hebrew says, two sons of new oil. And the Hebrew son of is an expression, meaning a person characterized by. And so we'll read uh, the son of the left hand. It means a left-handed person. A son of encouragement is an encourager. And so here, sons of oil is those who've been anointed. And you go through the Old Testament. Who was anointed? 
the priest, when he took office, and the king, when he took office. Those were the anointed ones. Who's been addressed in these last two visions? The high priest and the governor, who's closest they have to a king at that point. So Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. And so it's pointing to these ones, human leaders who've been instrumental in the church. Growing and building the temple being rebuilt. Later on, there'll be two men who will be instrumental in the rebuilding of the walls and the worship of God. And and they're, they're pointing to the ultimate great high priest and the ultimate king, and yet they're significant in God's plan. And it will be to that rebuilt temple that Jesus Christ will come. And so each one has an important role in the kingdom of Christ. And in that day, in that situation, you may wonder about, you know, what what would be the glory, the future glory to to Israel, to the, to the king, to the priest, to the prophet. But there would be one who would be glorious, whose kingdom would go from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And he uses sinful men and women, sinful boys and girls who are empowered by a spirit to build his kingdom and to accomplish his will. When you think about application, I trust that you understand you need, I need the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's not how smart we are, how winsome our personality is. If we're to accomplish anything in the kingdom of God, it has to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's true for you individually, it's true as as families, it's true as a congregation. And so how do we get the help of the Holy Spirit? Well, we, in a spirit of dependence, humbly pray that God's spirit would be among us, would be directing us, would help us in those decisions that we cannot fathom on our own. 
And you can trust then as you do that that the Holy Spirit will provide opportunities to witness, opportunities to serve others, times when you can uh, teach someone or point out error, when you can encourage, when you can meet a physical need as you're transformed, enabled by the power of God's Spirit. Not by power, not by might, but by God's Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we I give you thanks for the message here that we each one need to keep in mind. as it's easy to get in the feeling I need to do it. It's what I do and by my wisdom and by my strength. But ultimately, as we are involved in spiritual warfare, if we are involved in spiritual realities, it all comes back to you. It all comes back to your spirit being at work. We pray for the abundance of your spirit to to be upon each one of us. To direct us as we worship, to direct us in our work situations, in our homes, times of recreation. That we would be empowered by him. And that your kingdom would be impacted. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.